This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you on today's show. We are asking how much screen time is too much time. We were joined by Dr. Selma from Moorfields Eye Hospital, giving us the lowdown on what the medical professionals say when it comes to our kids and what they're watching. Plus, embracing technology with AI, how you could make your life more productive, easier, even more exciting. Getting the inside scoop from our tech friends there. And it was Dr. Mariam as we talked women's health. It's Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. What do you need to know about pap smears, about HPV vaccine? She was on hand to answer my question. Of course, those coming in on the text line too. Plus, it was not one, but two experts joining us for pets and vets. We had physiotherapist Megan and Dr. Maria joining us from Modern Vet Clinic as we talked about how physio can help our animals and, of course, helping you out and ultimately saving you a trip to the vets. Your eye health on eye. With Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai. Eye care for you and your children. Moorfields, driven by your vision. Typically, children between the ages of 5 to 17 spend over six hours per day in front of a screen. This is a statistic that probably will not surprise you, um, because I bet yours is about the same number. Uh, We do live in an increasingly digital world, but interestingly, studies coming out looking at particular in the younger age group for children under the age of two, screen time has been associated with sensory differences later in toddlerhood according to a new study which we're going to be delving into. Joining us from Moorfields Eye Hospital is Dr. Salma Yassin, specialised in paediatric and neuro-ophthalmology. How are you, Dr. Salma? Hello, Helen. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm a bit worried about what we're going to be talking about today because I think like (laughs) many parents, screen time is just part of modern parenthood and I think we all have concerns about it. And I I'm certainly don't want to be demonising screen time between now and half past. I think it does play an increasingly important role in education and just being a, a child in the modern world. But there are some medical aspects that we really do need to be tuned into. So have you seen an increase in screen time, especially post-COVID-19, where a lot of learning was switched to screens? And what are some of the consequences we're seeing in children as a result? Yes, exactly. And so after COVID, um, we saw a pandemic in screen use. Most kids nowadays spend many hours on the screens at home and at school. Um, Previously, most kids used to play outside. And now we're seeing this big shift, the digital shift. Um, And with that, we are seeing some associated eye problems. Um, The most common ones is uh, like a pandemic in nearsightedness or myopia just because kids use the iPad for so long, their phones for so long, everything is that near. This forces the eye to become even bigger and the prescriptions start to increase. So we're seeing the myopia pandemic even in very young children. We're seeing it in two, three-year-olds. We we didn't used to see that Mm. five to six years ago. So this is definitely something new. And another thing uh, screens can use is digital eye strain. So just because kids sit on the screens for so long, they start having itchy eyes, dry eyes, blurry vision, some even complain of headache. Um, So screens also cause dry eyes. And some kids usually 
also use the screen before going to bed. And this also can disrupt their sleeping cycle. Mm, cycle usually. Yeah. And the quality of sleep as well. Um, we all know we should be having good sleep hygiene as adults, you know, not doom scrolling until the second we fall asleep, you know, ideally charging our phones outside of the bedroom. We, 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 know, all, we know all of this. We know all of this. Um, but um, whether it's screens or indeed bright lights, the impact on children in particular is really, really strong. Um, I want to come to that. But before that, I want to ask about the age to introduce screens. Um, in an ideal world, when would those little chubby hands first be holding an iPad, Doctor? I think the question is, how long can they stay on the iPad? Mm. Uh, so the recommendation is maximum an hour a day. I know it's a very low, um, it's a short time and most parents cannot meet this timing. But I would say one to two hours should be the maximum. I think a lot depends on how they're using screens as well. You know, whether it is sitting watching, and I don't say this lightly, the absolute garbage that, you know, YouTube kids throws up. I mean, and it is proper dross. I've I've looked at what my kids are watching going just, if you don't change it, I'm going to frisbee the iPad out of the window. Versus, I guess, um, less passive viewing, you know, how, how kids are using those screens. So one to two hours and does that include school? Because, you know, kids are increasingly using their iPads for learning in that classroom environment as well. So what I usually tell them is one to two hours for non-educational activities, mm-hmm. because at the end, if they use it at school, I don't want it to affect their uh, their education, their performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I always I always um, ask, tell them about uneducational use, not Excellent. for educational okay. use. I would like to limit it as much as possible. We've got some questions for you, as I thought we would. Um, we're going to come to those next. Dr. Salmi Yusin is with us today from Moorfields Eye Hospital, who does specialise in paediatric and neuro-ophthalmology. Um, we've, I'm curious also to hear from Dr. Salman next about the impact that we can see on concentration levels and even in behaviour. And is there a difference between the sizes and the types of screens when we're talking about phones versus iPads versus TVs? Are there any recommendations or indeed changes there? That's next. Your Eye Health on Eye. With Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai. World-leading experts in eye care. Moorfields. Driven by your vision. Talking screen time and kids, the impact on eye behaviour and more. And joining us from Moorfields Eye Hospital, we have got um, a specialist in paediatric and neuro-ophthalmology, Dr. Salma Yassin. And loads of messages coming in on this topic. Um, basically, how... In terms of recommendations, I'd love to get a bit of a read from you. You know, what are your concerns? What are your rules and regulations in your home too? Um, Asma joining us on the line. Um, Asma, what are you worried about and, and what, what have you put in place with your family? Hi, Helen. Hi. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure. Um, I was just, uh, I just messaged regarding the screen time. Uh, something I found really frustrating is that our school runs these reading challenges and during holidays and my son reads a lot of books we have a whole library in the house but uh, because I uh, he and the school only counts the books that are read on the app for those reading challenges mm-hmm. like the bug clubs and, and the things like that exactly yeah so we don't even bother participating in those challenges I mean after the amount of time we spend in school using devices for every subject uh, including writing 
uh, I just find it enough is enough. And then obviously after school, they want some time playing their games, mm-hmm. video games or things like that. So uh, he'd rather spend time doing that on screens than I have to put a stop somewhere. I'm we don't even bother abs- with the challenges ab- we, we had the exact same thing over Christmas, you know, reading challenge, fill this piece of paper with as many books as your kid can read. And it had the logos of the apps that they can use and I was just like well just ignore the bug club and the whatever you can read actual books you can write those down and if they don't count I don't really care I'll give you a reward and let's stick to paper for reading thanks very much Um, Asma thank you for that really appreciate it Uh, you see us saying on the text line 4001 are there any KHDA guidelines on the use of iPads and digital screens in schools many start iPad use in the really early age and a message anonymous saying same thing schools are part of the problem our son was um, only watching TV until KG1 and then school required a tablet. Um, Dr. Salma, as I said, it's not certainly about demonising because we don't want our children to be, you know, total Luddites. This is the way that kids learn now. Um, but it is about that responsible usage and I guess offsetting some of the usage that is, you know, part, part and parcel of, of growing up these days. Um, is there a difference between the sizes and the types of screens and the impact it can have on a children's eye health? So then uh, what really makes a difference is the distance. So if kids really need to use screens, always try to put them at least arm's length, uh, not too close to their eye. And there's the 20-20-20 rule. So every 20 minutes, they need to look at something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. This relaxes the muscles of the eye. It helps with the headache. And if children complain of... uh, dry eyes, itchiness, artificial uh, uh, lubricants Mm. can help. So artificial eye uh, eye drops, use them two to three times a day just to keep the eye hydrated. And take breaks from the device. Kids need to be outdoors. They need to be exposed to sunlight. All of that helps kids um, with their eye development, to help kids control their nearsightedness. And there are and there's a few things I want to highlight. Um, a lot of people say that, oh, I got my kid this uh, blue light blue light filter. So they they think that this is this is the way to protect the eyes from screens. But these blue light filters, there's no evidence that it works. Mm-hmm. And it's not protecting your children's eye. So even if they wear these glasses, it doesn't mean they can sit six hours on the, on the screen. There's no evidence that it works. And I, I usually tell parents not to pay extra money just to put the blue light filter on. Um, so this is one of the main mm-hmm. questions I get in clinic. I'm sure. Um, interestingly, UNICEF saying that most children begin using, using digital devices by the age of four, which I think is actually a little bit late. I would, I would, would have imagined a little bit earlier, but 25% of preschool children already own their own device. They've got their own iPad. Um, and interestingly, it's... Um, it's impacting concentration and behavior. I'm hearing this from teacher friends. I've certainly seen it in my own kids, this idea of wrestling the iPad out of their hands. Um, and we've had a message asking about that. It's the behavior when it's time to turn it off. She, you know, my four-year-old can't handle it, this message saying, so she becomes dysregulated, begs for one last show. Um, so any insights there? You know, what kind of measures do you think parents can take to manage screen time in an increasingly digital age? Ellen, what you're saying is uh, completely true and it's been proven. It even uh, delays brain development. So that's why even pediatricians recommend to reduce screen time as much as possible. Um, Honestly, my my personal opinion or my personal advice is to go out with these kids, let them 
be exposed to outdoors activities, have plans with other children, uh, get them involved in sports, something that is not screen related. I think that's what children need nowadays. I'm. I say this as a parent of two. What I find really frustrating is that my kids fight like absolute cats and dogs a lot of the time, but they game together. They will sit next to each other and they'll play a game really nicely. They'll, you know, they'll meet each other in you know Roblox or you know they'll help each other with you know this game the Toka Boka they have, and that kind of kills me because they actually re- are really lovely together when they're when they're gaming. And then when they're not, the behaviour falls apart. Um, but I think you're right in terms of trying to find things that are more compelling than the screens. And that means being, it's harder work as a parent. It's harder work, it is. Um, I, I completely sympathise. But I think with the younger kids in particular, this data that came out of a recent study, it was just last week, JAMA uh, Pediatrics found an association between screen time and what's known as atypical sensory processing. So this can include developing sensory seeking behaviours like um, that. what they cited was, you know, obsessively watching a spinning object, becoming slower to respond to stimuli, uh, slower to respond to hearing their own name and avoiding some sensory experiences like resisting new food, for example, or having sensitivities around, around noisy environments. Does that surprise you, that association between the sensory development? No, not really, not at all. I think it's very le- relevant to what we're seeing, and it's it's becoming a pandemic. We see we're seeing a lot of ADHD. We're seeing a lot of processing disorders, and I think increased screen time has a big role. Mm-hmm. The what we've done, and I'm certainly not holding our parenting up as a gold standard by any means, is we've said no tech in the week for exactly the the message that we've had that when it comes to taking them off the iPads in the morning if it's before school or, or you know, so it's, there is no iPads in our house in the week at all. But at the weekend, it's like it's like they fetishize it, you know that. So I'm, I I don't feel like we've got the balance right either. So I'd love to hear from people on the text line in terms of any advice, any apps ironically um, anything that's working for you and of course um, I wanted to ask you lastly about the eye health piece Dr Salma for um, what are some of the signs that um, you should be my mum should be like you, you'll get square eyes if you watch too much tv our children aren't getting square eyes but they are certainly having some problems with their eye health what are some of the warning signals that parents should be tuning into that might require to come and see an expert such as yourself uh, that's a very good question, Alan. Uh, first of all, I recommend screening kids at least once a year, especially before going to school as a baseline. But uh, if you notice that your kid is squinting to see, he's coming really close to objects to see better, a lot of itchiness, tearing, redness, all of these are uh, signs that you need to see an ophthalmologist. Um, and just to demystify what might happen when you bring a child in to see you know, a, a pediatric ophthalmologist such as yourself, what happens in the room? You know, how can we explain it to them? Um, do we need to get a referral or, you know, all of that stuff? Would you mind just breaking it down for us? Yes, of course. Um, so you don't need a referral to book an appointment. We see general um, general consultations. What we do is we, uh, we do have special ways of checking vision in children depending on the age. And then we check the health of the eye. After that, we put drops inside the eye. If a kid is really, really young and can't really read the letters, we can check the prescription inside the eye with some light. Um, so it's part of the visit. So when we're done, we know if the eye is healthy and we know if a child, even if a two-year-old needs glasses. 
Thank you so, so much. Um, with your permission, if someone wants to send me the word I or the I emoji, Dr. Salma, um, I'd be very happy to share your details there and, of course, how to make an appointment. Thank you. I think it's a, it's a bigger topic than what we were touching on today when we think about, you know, parenting and concentration and certainly some of the struggles that teachers are coming up against. But there are things that are within our control. I think information and you know, being informed is absolutely key. So thank you so much for your insights on the topic. Really, really thank appreciate so it. Have a good afternoon ahead. Uh, Dr. Salmi Seen speaking to us from Moorfield Eye Hospital. She specialises in paediatric, as I said, uh, neuro-ophthalmology. Talking tech now, real life AI applications for yeah people like you and me, but also the implications on things like data analytics, what's happening behind the scenes. We've got the inside scoop now with Michelle Stoney, Senior Technical Product Manager at Alteryx. Um, I, I still think there's an awful lot of fear and ah about <laughs> AI. <laughs> now, you and I kind of exist in very different worlds in that I suspect you're probably a lot more tuned in to it um, which is why you're in the hot seat and I'm the one asking the dumb dumb questions um, before we talk about what's happening um, and ultimately how everyone listening today could be making their lives easier quicker cheaper more productive tell us a little bit about the work that you do at Alteryx and why you find AI particularly useful and applicable yeah absolutely well firstly thank you so much for having me here pleasure Absolute awesome experience. Um, so some of the stuff that we do with data and analytics is, is pretty incredible. So we've been working with companies not only in the Middle East, but also worldwide for a number of years now. And a big part of that is within that AI space. So that's everything from figuring out, okay, how much are we going to sell of a certain product, all the way down to saying, well, which customers are most like which other customers. So there's a lot that you can do within the world of AI. And what's pretty interesting now is that we finally got to a place where everyone can start to interact with AI. And there's so many different ways and applications, which I'm sure we'll be talking all about uh, just now, on how you can actually use it to, to make your life that much easier. Obviously, the big boy, ChatGPT, um, I think most people have had a little play around on it, uh, whether that is, well, I've heard about people working on their CV, working on exit letters, you know, working on blog posts, all sorts of different applications. For people listening today, how do you think it can actually enhance our lives? I'll give you a great example. So I'm someone who absolutely loves going to the gym. And what I've ended up using ChatGPT for is saying, all right, well, why don't you be my very own personal trainer? So <laughs> tell me what I should do today. Tell me what I should be eating, things I should be considering when it comes to starting a new program. And it does a really good job at it. And it's, it's just one example. Another one is uh, grocery shopping. So we're seeing that a lot more apps these days do have chat GPT integration. So I can say, this is what I've got in the fridge. What do I need to buy in order for me to make, let's say, a spaghetti bolognese? It's like ready, steady, cook Ainsley Harriet in, modern, in the modern pocket. I used it yesterday because I don't know about anyone else listening. I get to January and I start to feel a little bit twitchy about... I really fancy a holiday. Where should we go? And this is the discussion me and my husband. Like, he's like, I want to go to Europe. And I'm thinking, I quite fancy, you know. So I put in family holiday, five nights. This is the budget. Give me five suggestions. And I was like, that's actually super interesting because there were destinations that wouldn't have really occurred to us. But even went as far as giving us an itinerary. Absolutely. And, and what's interesting is we're going to see more and more of those types of applications. Because what's happening is businesses are now getting hold of the fact that people are using things like ChatGPT. So they're actually developing their own microservices all around being able to 
give people that type of information. Mm-hmm. So there's so many companies out there who are monetizing this and it's making it that much easier for normal people to start interacting with AI to, to make, again, data-driven decisions, which is the, the goal. Well, are there any other platforms, apps, programs that you think are worthy of our attentions and worthy of, of a bit of experimentation away from ChatGPT? Um, so I think ChatGPT got its reputation because it's the most accessible one, and that's the one that's uh, pretty advanced. But outside of that, you've got things like Dali, which uses um, a lot of image recognition. You can actually start to make your own pictures from it. Um, I think outside of looking at this particular models, it's all about making sure that it's actually relevant for you. Yeah. So as a normal everyday person, something like ChatGPT in your pocket is absolutely brilliant with OpenAI. Uh, for businesses, that's really where you need to have a bit more control. You need to have a bit more governance and a bit more customization around what it is that you're actually powering these different AI models with. And that's where it becomes quite nuanced and uh, quite, quite interesting. I think the people worried about it. People worried about, you know, is this going to threaten my job? Um, how can we get past that fear factor and work in collaboration with technology rather than worried about being edged out by it? That, that's a question that we hear all the time. And the reality is that AI is at a place where it still needs that human. It, it does need the human element. And that's really where I encourage people to start experimenting with things, playing around with AI and, and using it in your day-to-day lives, be it at work, be it outside of work. That's really where you're going to start becoming more comfortable with these sort of concepts. Just because you have something that can help boost your productivity doesn't mean that it's going to take away your job, but it'll give you more time to focus on the more value add. Uh, A good example is something like a spreadsheet. So before spreadsheet and Excel and things like that was a thing, you'd have to manually write everything down. And once these computer programs came in, the exact same conversation happened. Like, oh, this is going to replace my job. Uh, But what we actually saw was a massive boost in productivity because people could actually then start focusing on more high-value tasks. And I encourage everyone just to have a play around and it will definitely get you from zero to 100 that much quicker. Where do you think it's lacking in early 2024, Vishal? Where where do you see room for improvement in something like ChatGPT? So right now, it's, it's a very cool playground um, and businesses and, and people need to be aware that it's just as good at putting nonsense into, uh, yeah. in, into the world as well. So you need to be careful that you don't take everything it gives you at face value. You need to make sure that you've actually done a bit of research, done a bit of homework to, to know that what you're reading, what you're listening to and, and what you're using at the end of the day with these things needs to be also vetted. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge misconception that, yeah, if I put in anything, it will give me textbook, you know, uh, Shakespeare level answers. And that's just not the case. Well, I did this recently. I had a bit of an experiment. I was, I was a freelance writer for a long time and was always being commissioned to do things like, you know, write 500 words on a family holiday in Dubai. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll put that in, see what it comes up with. And it's, it, it was ChatGPT and it said, oh, you know, the malls are a fantastic place to explore indoors. And don't forget to visit the ski slope inside Dubai Mall. And I was like, ha! <laughs> it's not inside Dubai Mall, you know, and I think there is there's still these gaps in knowledge where it's interesting is if you are going back and forth with it, you know, let's say, write me an exit letter for my job. This is my job. This is what I'm going to. OK, make it make it more formal, you know, or make it funnier or make it shorter. Um, and having that back and forth. Interestingly, we were just discussing on Iron Education last week about the, ra- the rise in plagiarism um, in university applications and in, uh, in, in work as well. So I think there's also going to be a kind of a call and response from institutions, from companies to make sure that the, the content they're getting is uh, 
human. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like the, the number of fact checkers that there are out there to try to understand if something is, is computer generated or if it's something from a human is, is grown exponentially. Uh, and I'm totally with you on the using AI to make your life easier. That's a perfect example of it. Um, another example, I use it all the time just to do little things. So I'm like, oh, I'm stuck on this idea. And then I just use it as a brainstorming um, place. Or if I just need to take something and let's say I want to be able just to understand some sentiment analysis or, or use anything to, to figure out, okay, well, what is this actually conveying to the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you be my critic? Can you tell me if what I'm writing or what I'm saying is actually of any substance? And now you can actually have chat GPT and, and different forms of AI to speak to you. Uh, so it's, it's a very bizarre experience where you've almost got like a weird relationship with your phone. <laughs> <laughs> An even weirder one. When you say speak to you, are you talking about, you know, using a microphone function on chat GPT to be like, you know, for example, give me five family holiday ideas and then the voice will speak back to you. Yeah. And you can actually carry on the conversation. So let's say I say, yeah, give me five family holidays. It gives me the five. And I can say, actually, do you know what? I want something that's a little bit more uh, in the city. I don't want a beach holiday. But, OK, cool. Well, have you thought about this? Uh, and, and you can actually have a very surreally human machine conversation, which uh, I, I think we've been trying to do for a long time now. And, and we're getting closer and closer. Are there any job roles, industries that perhaps should be feeling more threatened than others, Michelle? I, I think that... Please the, don't say radio. Please don't say radio. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think everyone actually should just be, be a little bit more optimistic. I think the if you think about a car, this is a great example, because right now, yes, we may technically have the ability to have self-driving cars, but you still need to have both hands on the wheel. You still would not trust your self-driving car to actually get you from point A to B. And this is no different because you still need to have the human in the middle, the, the meaty bit, as I call it, uh, to, to help you actually understand that one is what has come out the other side correct. The Dubai more great example. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to make sure that it's actually relevant and to make sure that it helps guide your decisions. Like if we look at companies who are using AI today, uh, there was an automotive company who were using ChatGPT to do some of the customer service inquiries from their website. And that went horribly wrong. Uh, what ended up happening was people tried to game the system to say, can you sell me your car for $1? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it wasn't legally binding, thank goodness. But uh, it's just a great example of how you do need those controls in that. Absolutely. And, you know, I've spoken to numerous doctors recently about, you know, using AI for, you know, scanning, uh, let's say, mammogram reports, for example. Um, and you're never going to get past that human connection of doctor and patient, of an empathetic look or, you know, it's, it's so, so crucial, but it's how the, it can work hand in hand. A message here from Patrick saying, is it worth, worth paying for a subscription or are there any free uh, GPT apps? So you can upgrade, can't you? For You can upgrade. On, is it worth it? Uh, it depends. I, I would say, um, so again, I don't work for OpenAI, so I can't <laughs> speak to their, uh, uh, their practices. I think as long as you're having a play with, with ChatGPT or, or with any AI platform, um, it, it's only going to benefit you, not in terms, not just in terms of your knowledge, but also in terms of being a bit more comfortable and, and having those kind of fears and doubts that you have about this sort of technology, they all kind of simmer away. It's very easy to be like, nope, this is modern nonsense and it's never going to take off. But that, that's like saying, I'm never going to use Google. <laughs> exactly yeah. that. I think the days of not having this sort of technology are, are in the past now. Lean in. All right. Vishal, for anyone who wants to find out more about you guys um, at Alteryx in terms of, well, everything we've been talking about and, and more, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Vishal Sony at Alltrix. Uh, you can hit our website, so alltrix.com. There you can actually find a little bit more about our products. You can take the product tour, uh, as well as sign up to a free trial where you can test drive all of our products and, and just have a bit of fun with your data. Thank you so, so much. Really interesting. Um, we'll never be able to recreate the magic of a conversation on air like this, obviously, but I'm, I'm intrigued how we can be using it in the future. I have interviewed an AI expert and wrote questions using ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> and it saved me a fair old whack of time. Uh, Michelle Sony speaking to us live in studio. Fresh from the Dubai traffic, we're delighted to welcome to the studio the fantastic Dr. Mariam Awatai, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist from her own clinic. Decades of experience, more than I would share because I don't want to give away your age. How are you, Dr. Mariam? I'm very good, Helen. It's wonderful to be here. Happy New Year to happy you year. and all those gorgeous, gorgeous viewers. Well, ha- and a happy <laughs> healthy. That, happy healthy. That's what we're looking forward to. True. Now, we, are, we can take questions about all sorts over the next yes. hour in terms of women's health, but it is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, so I think it is a really important time to shine a light on that topic. Let's start with how common is cervical cancer, Dr. Mariam? Okay, thanks, Helen. Well, cervical cancer, it is actually the fourth commonest cancer uh, in women uh, after things like breast cancer, colon cancer, um, and uh, cancer of the lungs. So it's a really important cancer. Um, If you take uh, the Western uh, Hemisphere, so high-income societies, the uh, incidence of uh, cervical cancer is around the 14th commonest. Um, But if you took a global average, Mm. it's about the fourth commonest. So it is really important. But it's also really important to point out that it's highly preventable. Yes, really, really, Helen. And this is what makes it close to our hearts. It's one of the few cancers that you can actually prevent because... Uh, 99.3% of all cancers of, of the cervix are actually driven by a virus called human papillomavirus. Now, human papillomavirus, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. But it, when it gets uh, to the cervix, usually at the point of, of marriage and first se- sexual contact, this can sometimes persist in high-risk types of human mm-hmm. papillomavirus. This can lead to cervical cancer. When you say it's everywhere, there are hundreds of strains of Absolutely. HPV, you know, everything Absolutely. from, you know, like warts, you know, on your feet. Um, but there are a, a number of strains that are potentially more dangerous and that's what the vaccine can help with is that right? correct this is absolutely correct there are over 130 different types of serotypes for human papillomavirus so we don't really worry at all about the low risk uh, uh, types um, and as you quite rightly pointed out these cause very very easy wards that uh, come and go and can be treated um, and do not have any cancer potential uh, the ones that we are worried about are the high-risk uh, varieties, the type 16, the type 18, 31, 33. We have excellent vaccines. In fact, type 16 and type 18 are responsible for something like 70% of cervical cancers. And all the vaccines that we have, we have about six different types of vaccines now uh, uh, available, commercially available. They all cover type 16 and 18. And then we have those that go right up to covering the nine most common cancer forms viruses, um, and this is Gardasil 9, we usually use this quite commonly in the UAE. Um, so really, preventable cancer is the, is the answer, really. It's the, it's the key to everything that we talk about during the, the month. But it is really important to women listening 
it is the onus is on you to be checked. We're going to be talking about pap smears next. How old should you be when you have your first pap smear? What actually happens when you get your legs in those stirrups? Um, and of course, touching further on the HPV vaccine. We've had a message asking about, um, is getting a smear painful? I'm 28 and never had one. We're here to demystify. We're here to de- debunk. Um, Dr. Marion with us through until four o'clock today. So what happens if your result is abnormal? That's next. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Joining us from the Mariam Awatai Clinic is Dr. Mariam herself, consultant, obstetrician and gynaecologist, medical director there. And we are marking Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. And I wanted to ask you about... What data do we have on the demographic, the the age, you know, even nationality, uh, any risk factors when it comes to women who are getting cervical cancer? Yes, really a good question. So it's generally accepted that you should be 25 years old um, for your first pap smear or earlier if you are sexually active. Um, and this is really important because, like we said before, HPV is everywhere, but HPV is only important at the point at which you, uh, a woman is sexually active. Now, I have to put a proviso to that because, in again, in some uh, low, me- low and middle-income societies where women have other problems, uh, other infections, chronic infections, uh, HIV and chronic uh, degenerative problems, they're on steroids or anything that might make their immunity slightly less, mm it's actually important to get pap smears a lot earlier. Okay. And for the age group of women that are getting cancer, do we have any information there? Yes, we have a lot of information about it. Now, the average age usually for cervical cancer is is between 35 and 45. Gosh, that's young. Very young and uh, really, really upsetting because it is preventable. And that's why, and also cervical cancer is a very slow-growing cancer. It's not going to suddenly come and, and, and be there. It takes about 7 to 15 years years for progression. In fact, some of the evidence suggests that it's up to 30 years for progression from the initial persistent HPV infection to the development of cancer is a very long time. And that's just the nature of the cells in that area. Correct. It's really because the commonest part uh, part of the cervix where uh, the cervical cancer occurs is actually called the transformations zone or the squamous columnar junction. Outside of the cervix, you've got very sort of squamous cells. They're thick. They're really resilient cells. On the inner part of the cervix, you've got columnar cells. And where it joins, the junction at where it, it joins is where cancer generally occurs. And therefore, if you just have a simple pap smear around you know, taking cells around that area, it is really good in in seeing if there is change. Let's talk about what happens during a pap smear. Dr. Marion with us today. Text lines are open and we're going to be getting to as many questions as we can between now and four o'clock because anonymous message saying, is a smear painful? I'm 28, never had one. So let's demystify this. Yes, please. Now, a pap smear is uncomfortable. That is the best way I can describe this. It is not painful. You definitely don't need a Panadol tablet to take a pap smear at all. A pap smear depends on one, the, you know, being comfortable with the person who's doing this pap smear for you, trying as much as possible to relax. And it's interestingly enough, it's the contraction of those muscles, those thigh muscles that can sometimes make it really difficult to uh, to have a pap smear. Of course, a pap smear involves using a little instrument called a, a speculum, which um, those of us who have had speculums don't particularly like, but it is really a very quick and seconds. a very easy six seconds, absolutely seconds to do a pap smear. Okay. Um, what happens if you get 
an email or more likely a phone call that says your pap smear results are quote unquote abnormal. What happens next, Dr. Mario? Okay, so I never want you to panic when you get that phone call or if you get that phone call, because like I said before, it's a very slow growing problem. And remember, the whole idea of cervical screening is actually pre-cancer. No one has cancer just yet at all. And cancer is when it's obvious. When you look and you see it, you can see it. It's overt. So pre-cancer lesions, there is enough time to get treatment for it. And there are a variety of excellent treatments available and we'll talk about this. So when you get that first phone call telling you that the pap smear is abnormal there are many categories. You will have uh, very mild abnormalities we call this atypical changes um, in the squamous squamous cells we have even milder ones where there's just mild dysplastic changes it's uh, you know equivalent to a a mildly abnormal smear. We have moderate changes on the cervix and then we have severe changes. There are are definitely percentages um, that make it more likely to develop um, cancers, uh, depending on what change you have. Mm -hmm. So women who have, say, severe dysplastic changes, they've got something like a 50-60% chance of having a a very naughty lesion within that uh, pap smear. But if you have a mild change or an ascus change, and uh, I'm going to talk about, I keep talking about human papillomavirus or HPV, but if you have a mild change and you you do not have this HPV virus, you've been tested for it, and you do not have this HPV virus, it's really nothing you just need to wait you will the you know the body will deal with it mm-hmm. in 6 months we repeat the pap smear and it's normal so no panicking when you get that if a woman gets that phone call it's really just to come in and get counseled find out the degree of abnormality and realize that we have excellent treatment um, for pre-cancer changes. Dr. Myron with us today. We are going to be going to the text line very soon indeed. Um, before that, I wanted to ask, since you've got the mic, um, what are some of the common myths, you know, misconceptions that you encounter in practice around cervical cancer and HPV that I'm going to give you the floor, I'm giving you the power for you to go, do you know what guys, <laughs> this isn't right and enough is enough. You're so lovely. There are there are a few myths out there for sure. One we've kind of already talked about. So abnormal pap smear means cancer. No, it does not mean cancer. Abnormal pap, ab, abnormal changes are just pre-cancer changes. They're slight changes in the cervix. It is not equivalent to cancer. Uh, so uh, cervical cancer being uh, associated with, you know, be having a promiscuous lifestyle, etc. Uh, no. It, uh, cervical cancer occurs in all, uh, you know, all the societies. It does not really. discriminate. It does not discriminate. And uh, the only association is that, yes, it is uh, at the point of sexual activity that this is more common. Um, the other thing that the other myth we hear about around cervical cancer and cervical cancer screenings around the HPV vaccine and uh, the hesitance sometimes mm-hmm. for uh, women to present themselves. The best time to have the HPV vaccine is actually between 12 years old and 15 years old. So we should be targeting young children in secondary school, have the HB vaccine so that they have long-term immunity long before they, they get married, uh, etc. But it can be done later. So another myth is I have women who are married uh, who come in and, and I tell them, look, you've had a normal pap smear, you're negative HPV serotyping. Why don't you take a vaccination? And they're like, oh, it's too late. No, it's not too late. You can have a HPV vaccine vaccination to protect you. Um, when you said, um, you know, that kind of preteen teens, are yes. we talking about only girls or should boys be having the vaccine as well? Fantastic question, Helen. And 
the, in, the, in an ideal world, it should be both the girls and the boys. Uh, lots of countries, well, I shouldn't say lots, but some countries, like Australia, for instance, they are vaccinating both the boys and the girls because by vaccinating the boys, you're actually reducing the prevalence for HPV in the community. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, it would be best to vaccinate both. But at the moment, in our country, in the UAE, we are vaccinating women, girls and women. Joining us this afternoon, delighted to be welcoming Dr. Mariam Awatai. We've had messages about um, sebaceous uh, cysts. We've had questions exactly this, you know, is it too late to get HPV? Uh, when should you get a pelvic ultrasound? Um, came through on social media earlier. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. It's always a busy show when we've got an expert in the hot seat, such as Dr. Mariam Awatai speaking to us in the studio. Um, she has her own clinic in Healthcare City, decades of experience. And I, I just love the way you explain things. I think it's just so kind and no nonsense. And I think I, I really do appreciate your time. And I think that's why we're having so many messages, because a lot of us feel a bit befuddled and confused by the amount of information out there sometimes. So thank, thank you, you for helping us get to the bottom of things, thank so to you. speak. Thank you for having me. Um, we were just talking about the HPV vaccine. And I've had messages from different age groups. And message here saying um, you mentioned girls getting the HPV vaccine Uh, what about boys so we've had a question about a 13 year old boy about a 14 year old boy would you mind explaining if they would fall into it that kind of catchment group and if so how to get that vaccine absolutely thank you Helen so yes boys should be vaccinated or or, or if a boy in this country boys are not automatically vaccinated so if you are wanting to vaccinate your sons it's again the same age group it's usually between 12 and 14 Um, it can actually even go up to 15 years old and uh, what you have to do because they will not automatically be vaccinated within their schools you would have to take them in to come to see a clinic you know someone like mine or any any clinic of your choice and uh, they would be given the same vaccine there is no difference the vaccine is given over three doses um, and uh, they're given uh, three months apart, three months intervals, and it, pr- pr- it produces life, lifetime uh, protection. Which has exactly answered the question that's come in saying, does the vaccine need to be repeated? I have all the doses, but 15 years ago. So lovely. No, it doesn't need to be repeated at all. 15 years ago is just as good as having it six months ago. Okay. Um, no, no need for repeating. Um, and to the other end of the scale, I've had two messages from women in their mid-40s, Claire, saying, Hi both, 44. In the recent and not so recent past, I've had HPV high risk, but my last and most recent pap smear came back negative. Um, I'm wondering, is it worth at my age to go for the vaccine despite prior infections that have cleared up? I understand it can protect you from strains you haven't had before and might even stimulate the body to clear dormant strains that you might have. It's a fantastic question and I completely agree with everything. You should have HPV vaccination should you it is not really related to your age at all so 44 years old as long as you are HPV serotype negative and your last pap smear was normal you should avail yourself and right now there are there are really really good vaccines covering quite a lot of high risk oncogenic uh, vac- uh, uh, serotypes like Gardasil 9 for instance and this will cover you for a, a variety um, uh, of the vaccines and there is even evidence to suggest that it helps as well with the oncoproteins that these uh, human papillomaviruses produce, uh, the E6, the E7 uh, oncoproteins. So I would 
encourage you to get another vac- to get a vaccine. It's a big yes from Dr. Mariam. 4001, we've only got a few minutes left to be taking your questions. And you don't need to put your name on if you'd rather not. I understand when we're talking about women's health and smears and all that stuff, that if you'd rather be private, absolutely fine. And we have had an anonymous message here, and I think... You're the perfect person to answer this because you, you're so great in terms of that, the pregnancy piece, but also women's health. Um, Anonymous mm. is just saying, thanks both. Really appreciate this chat. My last smear shows HPV and abnormal cells and I need to go for a colposcopy. Yes. Am I saying that right? Yes. Um, she says, I was due to start meds this weekend for a transfer. We've been doing IVF for four years now, multiple rounds. Would this delay things? Oh, it's a fabulous question. And, you know, I... I would love to be face to face with you talking to you because it's quite a dilemma. Um, obviously, if you go ahead with the embryo transfer um, and you become pregnant successfully, which you will, uh, the chance of us being able to diagnose you if there is a big problem going on or a significant problem going on becomes significantly reduced because we cannot interpret what we're seeing um, easily um, when you are pregnant. So really my advice is go in for colposcopy. Colposcopy is a very quick and easy assessment. It is a microscope, a magnified lens times 1000. It allows us to see what's going on on your cervix, to delineate it, to make sure we can assess the abnormal areas. And if we find any abnormalities, we will remove them. It can be done at the same time. It is you know, relatively painless, actually. You do not have to have an anesthetic for it. You can be in and out of hospital the same day within four hours um, and uh, it clears up. Mm-hmm. Of course, it will delay things you will need. If you have a loop excision or a removal of a, an abnormal area, you will need at least two to four weeks to heal from that. So it will delay embryo transfer, but you are much better safe than sorry. Peace of mind. Definitely. Okay. Really hope. Thank you for that question and wishing you all the very best. Um, a message here saying, Hi Helen, I've got two sebaceous cysts down there which have been increasing in size. Recently visited my OBGYN. She assured me it's benign. However, the only way to get rid of them is through an incision. Hoping there's another way and if not, what is the usual healing period? What is a spacious cyst, especially in that area? So lovely. Nice question. Okay, so not to do with with, uh, with cancers, but in the same, re- same, same sort of area. Sebaceous cysts are just uh, a slight blockage in the sebaceous gland, basically, which swells up and produces a, a swelling in the vulval area, commonly in the vulval area, but can, in, it can occur actually anywhere, mainly the hair-bearing areas, but it can occur anywhere. Typically, sebaceous cysts are not isolated. They don't come in ones. They come in twos or threes. Um, and typically they don't really grow that big. They don't grow uh, more than one to two centimeters, but they can be painful and they can be annoying and they can get infected. Um, And if they are persistent um, and you have tried antibiotics, because that would be the first thing that we would use just to make sure it's, it's, it's not inflamed or infected. If it does not go down on conservative therapy, then yes, we usually would excise it or incise and drain it. Um, but it's important that when you are, if you are having persistent sebaceous cysts, check your sugars. Make sure that there is no abnormal uh, uh, glucose intolerance, sugar intolerance, because uh, we do get a lot of sebaceous cysts where we have uh, insulin resistance, abnormal glucose, polycystic ovaries, and sometimes type 2 diabetes. Okay. Hope that helps. 
All the very best. Um, a follow- bit of follow-up question, I guess, to our discussion earlier on pap smears, Dr. Mariam, saying when should you get a pelvic ultrasound? It's an excellent question. Now, a pelvic ultrasound scan, simple test, using ultrasound scans, non-invasive, just allows us to see what's going on. So, of course, the first indication is if there is a problem. So if you get lower abdominal pain, if you have abnormalities in your period, either the regularity of it, the heaviness of it, or whether or not you're getting intermenstrual bleeding... All of this should trigger uh, having a pelvic ultrasound scan. So symptoms, pelvic ultrasound scan. But I want to put it for, uh, you know, push a little bit forward. I actually am a big proponent for well woman assessments. So I don't want you to wait for when you, you know, have the symptoms once a year annually from age 25 onwards. Again, earlier, if you are married and sexually active, once a year you should come in, whether you have symptoms or not, to have a pelvic ultrasound scan because you'd be amazed at how much we can find. And, and in terms of the frequency of pap smears, how often should we be doing that? So pap smears should be done every three years. It's true we're slightly spoiled uh, in our region and uh, we, are, we are also opportunistic in our region because we don't have an automatic recall service for pap smears. Yeah, the onus is on you. The onus is on you. And so we are busy. We have busy lives. And whenever we have an opportunity to meet a gynecologist, I think as long as the interval is, is more than uh, 12 months, it's not a bad idea to do a pap smear. We've run out of time. We haven't run out of questions. We will, of course, have you back in the hot seat Miss very you guys. soon. I know, but in the meantime, people can come and see you in real life. Definitely. Um, I've already had people asking for your details. If you want to send me the word doctor, I'm very happy to share Dr. Mariam's website. Um, thank you so much such for your time. Such a pleasure, Helen. And such a pleasure. Wishing you a wonderful, happy, stress-free 2024. Thank How does that you. sound? Oh, that sounds amazing. Let's manifest that. <laughs> you can send me, as I said, the word doctor. No questions asked. No need for a name on 400. This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. Not one, but two experts in the studio this afternoon. I love a busy studio and we have got from modern vet two experts megan taylor is with us today registered veterinary physiotherapist so we actually haven't had a physio on the show before and i think it's going to be super useful whether we're talking about injuries about rehab about aging uh, she graduated from Hartbury university one of the world's leading equine colleges but we can help with some smaller animals as well today and dr maria with us today the driving force behind vet livery mobile veterinary clinic Fueled by her love of animals, we're going to talk about how that can really benefit both. It's so lovely to have you with us. And um, I actually wanted to start with a news story that caught my eye. So okay. the world's <laughs> oldest dog has been dethroned. Okay, Bobby was said to have been 31 when he wow. died last October. However, there might have been a trick. The Guinness World uh, Book of Records is saying that they're looking into this data because things aren't adding up, including paws changing colour. Yeah. <laughs> um, basically, uh, the, the longevity was put down to a few different factors. A very laid back life in Portugal, uh, only ever having human food. Um, but now they're saying, yeah, it's um, probably a bit too good to be true. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Maria, oldest animal you've ever treated. Does any, anyone or anything come to mind? Um, actually, it was a cat. It was 20 years old. 20? Yeah. So, decade off this alleged Bobby. What about you, Megan? When it comes to ageing animals, how can physio help? 
Um, so yeah, I've also had a cat that was like 22 or so. Um, but for aging animals, physio can definitely help. As they get older, most of them tend to get some kind of arthritis in their joints. So they'll have problems with mobility. They'll be limping. They're not able to get up, um, up the stairs onto the sofa like they used to. So physiotherapy basically helps to either improve the strength or to decrease pain as well and to improve their kind of flexibility. Um, how do you guys work together um, when it when it comes to the medical medication side and also the physio? Is it does it tend to be a bit of a referral, doctor? Yes, it's kind of uh, referring. So whenever we have a pet, uh, mainly after surgeries, also we also refer to physiotherapy. And when we diagnose uh, like uh, um, a joint disease or muscle atrophy, so we refer the patient to uh, Megan, and she will take it from there. I love your Instagram, Megan. Oh, thank you. It's like proper (laughs) heartwarming stuff. It's just gorgeous. It must be a really, really rewarding job because the quality of life that you can often offer a furry patient must be amazing. Have there been any transformations that have really stayed with you? Oh, to be honest, most of them. Like definitely what you said, it's just very rewarding getting to see them improve. And a lot of the times, sometimes it's kind of the last hope physio, like the surgery wasn't an option or for whatever reason it didn't work. Um, so physio can sometimes be the last option that people mm-hmm. find. Um, any of the spinal cord injury ones, we have a lot of stray cats who get hit by cars. And there's some really amazing people out there who rescue them and bring them to us. Um, so many of those that have recovered and walked, this is always the nicest thing. And I guess in that sense of it, when it comes to trying to rehome an animal, you know, it's it's going to be easier, and I'm being a bit cynical now, for a family to say, do you know what, You know, there might not be as many mobility issues with this animal because of the rehab that you've done with them. So hopefully helping them find homes too. It's true, but for some reason, if there's three-legged cats or they have some kind of a problem, people seem to be quite keen to adopt them. I don't know, they kind of feel bad for them. (laughs) good. Yeah. I I like it. Um, What about issues that you've experienced with certain breeds, um, whether it's cats or dogs? Are there anything that we need to particularly be tuned into when it comes to, well, yeah, breed-specific issues? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Each breed generally nearly has something you can pretty much guarantee that they're at risk for. So like French bulldogs, IBDD, which is like back problems, which can lead to paralysis as well. It's very common in this breed or like dash hounds with their long back. They also tend to get back problems. Uh, Labradors, arthritis after the age of seven, like 90% of them will have some kind of arthritis or hip dysplasia or elbow dysplasia as well. Wow. Um, I asked this as a, as a cocker spaniel mum. What do I need to be aware of with cocker spaniels? Cocker spaniel, the ears. This. Oh, which one? <laughs> the the ears, yes. Yeah, the ears. Oh, really? I mean, they do they're such cute, big, fluffy ears. All of the moisture and everything stays into them and they always get infections. I don't know oh, if you found that with yours. No, we haven't. Yet. But I did have a, a, a senior cocker spaniel a few years ago and she got arthritis in the legs. And unfortunately, that was why we ended up having to say goodbye to oh. her when she got to... 12 that um yeah it was just an awful lot of pain we did what we could but i think that i think that it's really empowering to think as, as a pet parent that there are things that you know yeah. are, with you know are possible whether that's at home with clinic and as i said we've got loads of questions coming in about physio um i want to before we go to the text line ask you dr maria about that mobile vet um how does it work and, and what are some of the benefits when it comes to working with families who might need your help okay so mainly it's a mobile clinic it's a van that is fully equipped like we have a full clinic inside with a lab and a blood test that we can do everything on the spot wow. so you just call book an 
appointment and uh, we bring the clinic uh, directly to your doorstep. Wow. Uh, so we can do inside everything from um, skin check, eye check, ear check, consultations, vaccination, well, preventive medicine. That's exactly everything. just a question about Megan just talking there about the amazing people that, you know, that rescue you do TNR and Elisa, who's a regular listener, has sent some questions actually on the physio front as well. Does this thing, do, um, are you able to do TNR, Parvo vaccines for colonies of cats? You know, yes. We're limited in funding, but I think it must be hugely helpful for you to go to them. Yes, exactly. Yes, we do. But, but for sure, we have, we have to book appointment because usually we divide per areas uh, the appointment and depending on each area we go, we do the visits. Okay. But yeah. Right. We are going to go to the text line next. Joining us in studio, we have got Dr. Maria and we've got physio Magnum. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Megan Taylor is a registered veterinary physiotherapist and we've got Dr. Maria with us. And I have to say, she's not in her mobile vet van today. Was keep her in studio, joining us from Modern Vet. And we have so many questions, Dr. Maria, from people saying, my dog in particular hates going to the vet you know it hates getting in the car was this part of the problem solving i guess you were anticipating with this service yes actually yes for like all anxious pets that don't like to go to the clinic or like car rides we can just come to their own environment they will be like playing sniffing around we just do whatever we want to do and they will not feel like zero stress even for the for the owner or for the um, for the pet, yeah. even for senior pets as well, or pets with like uh, mobility mobility difficulties, when it's hard like to put them in the car and take them, or when they are old. So yes, the service is um, oh. like life saving. Well, <laughs> if you want details, you can just send me the word vet. We'll be very happy to send you the link. <laughs> uh, we've had Elisa messaging earlier, and as I said, she does fantastic work with with rescuing with with TNR and, and helping some of these animals, and she sent a couple of photos and videos. Um, one is of Hamdan, who was found dragging his legs, you know, really bad wounds, amputated the tail um, and having some issues with those legs. A little bit of pain sensation, but they have completely atrophied. Um, when it comes to physio helping in those situations, Megan, I mean, some cases you must see must be really distressing. With, I mean, you've seen the photo of Hamdan. Um, yeah, poor wh- Hamdan. Poor guy. Great name. Um, what, do you, what do you tend to advise and, and what's the process like of, of having physio sessions? Okay, so first thing, she probably needs to bring Hamdan to the clinic so we can see exactly where the problems are. Um, depending on how long they've had the injury as well, it depends kind of uh, how much success we'll get. Sometimes if it's a very old injury that's been there for years, the process will be much longer. Um, but for the first assessment, we'll understand like how much pain sensation there is, how much the nerves are working, and then we can do a combination of different things. Usually it depends what exactly we're working on, but let's say laser therapy, electrical muscle stimulation, sometimes acupuncture for these kind of spinal case injuries. It helps a lot. Um, And then the easiest or the most important part as well is the exercises I'll give you that you need to do at home. And for neuro cases like Hamden, these exercises need to be done very frequently, like every few hours. So it's quite intense, Mm -hmm. the, the work you have to do to um, some of the issues I'm sure that a lot of families facing is, you know, dogs getting or cats getting older, getting immobile, gaining weight, which then can kind of compound the joint problems. How important is having a healthy weight when it comes to our animals getting older, Megan? Oh, it's crucial. There's so many different illnesses that if you just reduce the weight a little bit already, the symptoms will help. Yes. Um, like arthritis, if they're overweight and you reduce the weight 10%, already the symptoms will drastically decrease. 
Um, a message here um, saying, Hi, Helen. Great show as usual. Thank you very much. Um, nine-year-old Shih Tzu is slowing down. Um, any suggestions for supplements to improve quality of life? When it comes to senior diets and supplements, Dr. Maria, is there anything that you... T- oh, obviously, we're doing assessments and any blood work, but what in, in general terms can be useful for those older animals? Yes, um, supplements as well are really important in this state of uh, stage of life. So we recommend all supplements containing like krill oil, omega-3, chondroitin, glucosamine. This is very crucial to introduce this supplement into our um, into the meal of our uh, pets, especially when they are like uh, senior pets. And it's not like, you know, me getting on iHerb.ae and buying <laughs> buying some tablets. This is all stuff that would come through the vet. Yes. Okay. Just want to clarify before people start, you know, adding to basket, and <laughs> giving, giving, their, giving their pets the supplements that we're taking. Um, we've also had a, a message in, can you give Red Paw a shout out? We've got hundreds of cats that need homes or even fosters too. So that's red poor. Um, right, for the text line we go 4001. You've got the ARN Play app as well. And don't forget, whether you are sending in a question, a comment, or pictures, we've had um, lovely Coco and Tony and Pugly and Pug and Archie and Husky sharing the love. Thanks, Dave. We love love seeing pictures of your pets. And um, this all puts you into the draw to win a three-month supply of Pro Plan pet food. Um, Perhaps a question for for both of you from Luke, saying we've got a 12-year-old rescue, a lurcher mix called Stan. I love it when you include the names. Great name. (laughs) Stan has arthritis and is getting noticeably uncomfortable on walks. Uh, The doctor is talking about injections, but wondering if it should be in conjunction with physio or are we just prolonging the inevitable? Lurches and arthritis, is this something you've seen before? And what advice would you give to Luke and the family? Yeah, several things. Um, Sometimes it's better off to start with the physio, try to get some results from this. And the injections, sometimes we use them, not every case, but like more at the end end stages, let's say. What kind of injections and what do they like? Pain relief or steroids? Yeah, there's different like pentazin, there's new one, Labrella, a lot of people are using. Um, Maria, if you want to as well. They are like based on pain, uh, pain relief. And I guess presumably if they're in less pain then it allows you to do perhaps exactly. a bit more with the physio. So sometimes yes. we use in combination a lot. The other thing he was saying on the walks, this is a big thing that a lot of people don't do when they have older pets. Keep your walks consistent. A lot of yeah. people will do like an hour one day he feels really good and then the next day like he's only able to walk five minutes. So you need to stick to this walking routine is the very yeah, important we need advice. to mention as well like muscle atrophy sometimes you have arthritis but it's not the only cause that is uh, why your pet is not actually moving well because mm-hmm. with time you will have muscle atrophy and physio as well can help uh, in like toning more the muscles can i ask and you know luke saying at the end there you know are we just prolonging the inevitable and i think that speaks to something that all pet parents struggle with you know in terms of wanting our pets to live a long time but most importantly live a comfortable ha- a yeah. comfortable yeah. happy pain-free life um <sighs> no easy way to say this but how, how do you then talk to patients and say do you know what we can help a little bit but but ultimately we might just be to borrow Luke's words prolonging the inevitable well it's a hard one to balance um usually there's a stage of trying a few different things seeing what works and I guess if you see no progress and nothing is helping there's probably a point there needs to be a discussion about end of life mm-hmm. but usually I would always advise there's a few things you can try first to before you get to that good stuff right we are We're going to be very busy. We've had an awful lot of messages, (laughs) so do stay with us. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. 
Joining us in studio this hour, Dr. Maria from Vet Livery Mobile Veterinary Clinic, uh, part of Modern Vets, and Megan Taylor as well, a registered veterinary physiotherapist. So we can help you out with all sorts of different issues. We've had some medical, we've had some rehab. It is all coming in on 4001 on the ARN Play app and the WhatsApp. Um, we love it when you include the names of your animals. Um, and Yvonne's been in touch with, about scrubs uh scrubs is a 15 year old cat now has kidney disease um getting um fluids every two days he's been on a wet kidney diet for two months but he's refusing it more and more he's losing weight don't want him to lose any more just wants the other cats or our food please help poor scrubs and poor scrubs's mum um dr maria i know this is a complicated case but i wondered if you could offer any insights or if i could connect you guys privately Um. Yes, usually chronic di- kidney disease are really complicated. We need to check the history, the blood test, uh, how they are, like um, the treatment they are they are on. But it's it's normal to lose weight when you have chronic kidney disease because you're losing the mass muscle. But um, this can be recovered with a specific type of food, uh, with specific treatment. Hydration is very important, but I do understand sometimes like doing subcutaneous injections are not enough. Mm-hmm. So the cat needs to be hospitalized. Okay. But again, we need the full history. I can, uh, like depending on this message, I cannot just... I like, understand. Um, I, will, um, I will connect mm-hmm. you and maybe you can whiz round in your van. <laughs> yeah. um, we have had a message about, we've been talking a lot about kind of, you know, a bit of dog rehab, but um, Mariam's been in touch saying, I have a two-year-old Maine Coon who's a wonderful companion, I love very much, who's had a fracture of the growth plate in his femoral head, saying lameness is actually improving, but I've told he needs surgery, trying to decide whether we should have the FHO or a hip replacement. Done lots of reading about the pros and cons of both, steering towards the FHO, but would love to hear your expert's opinion on distress, complications, and ultimately how well their fluffy patients have recovered. I think there's a question for both of you, but would you mind giving us the vet opinion first and when yes, we can talk about rehab post-surgery? Again, we need to check like the x-rays. We need to check the test that's been done before, but sure, like everything has a... Like we will try to find together with the owner the best solution for this uh, for the specific case. Can I ask you, when it comes to that physio point of view, you know, following something like a hip replacement, Megan, um, how much time should you allow to, you know, for healing and resting at home? And then you go, do you know what? Now we need to start building up some strength again. Talk, can we talk post-surgery? Uh, quite quickly, actually, we have to start the physiotherapy. A lot of people think, you know, we wait a few months, but normally within a week, two weeks, you start already the physio. Uh, with the FHO, it's it's normal to expect it can take time. I think people give animals such smaller time frames than humans. Like people, if you have a hip replacement in a human hospital, you know it's going to take months and months. Uh, mm. But with cats, we have like a two-week patience level. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, after FHO, we, we do usually recommend physiotherapy to help encourage putting weight into it because with most cases, you want small loading into the leg instead of completely not using it, um, but slowly increasing how much they're able to do. Okay. We were touching earlier on um, on supplementation, Doctor, with a question here about that nine-year-old Shih Tzu. Um, no name on this one. Uh, it's about a um, 16-year-old darling boy dog who's got arthritis, doesn't want to go for walks, think he's in pain, thinking about turmeric or collagen, but I've heard mixed reviews. I, I have no idea on this topic. I mean, I take collagen. <laughs> I enjoy turmeric. Um, do some of these have benefits to animals? 
Yes, for sure. But as I mentioned before, it's not just about collagen. The, um, it needs to contain chondroitin and glucosamine. These are the main uh, supplements or like nutrients that should be in, in, the, in the vitamins to hydrate the articulation and uh, to prevent like uh, arthritis. Okay. Um, quick question from um, Annie saying we've got a cat a rescue who's had two I hope I'm saying this right Giardia Giardia, saying I fear it might be coming back again the vet thinks she's stressed because of another kitten I've recently rescued could that be the reason my cat does go to the garden and courtyard and I wonder if I should stop her what is Giardia okay so Giardia is a kind of parasite that's mainly present in the water uh, and in the environment so usually we don't know like uh, pets usually get it but we can we cannot know exactly the source uh, so mainly it can be when she goes out mainly from the water mainly from other cats so she should make sure when she gives the treatment she should treat both cats together because it can be transmitted and it can be transmitted as well to human okay. so she might as well be transmitting the parasite to the cats Back and forth. so if she wants to treat one cat, everybody in the house should be treated from humans to pets. And then after that, we can see she needs to like uh, change the litter, wash them, the litter box to wash them very well. So it's a it's a process. But um, but usually we have good result after the treatment. Uh, it will, they will be fine. Okay. I really hope that helps, Annie. Um, Sammy's been in touch um, about uh, cruciate ligament. Is this something we can help with, Megan? Got a desert special called Mickey. After three separate issues involving rest, painkillers, the vet decided that it might be cruciate ligament. He's been knocked out for x-rays this morning. Where do we go from here? Oh, poor lad. Uh, cruciate ligament's pretty common. It depends on the level of the rupture. If it's a complete rupture, always need to have surgery. Um, if it's partial tear, sometimes we can do a physiotherapy, but again, it depends on the case um, and what the vet recommends. Um, but it is as exactly what they said. It's quite a reoccurring problem if you don't fix it properly. So just resting and then not really doing anything after it's going to keep coming back. So Can I ask you, um, when it comes to animal physios, is it much like human physios? Because, you know, you go and you pay your money and you have your 45 minutes and you're like, I haven't been fixed. And then they give you the piece of paper and go, you've got to do your homework now. And you go, yeah, yeah, I will. And then you never do. That's been my experience. What about homework for our pets? Yeah, they have homework as well. What kind of of things can that involve? So I used to work with children and I always say it's the same thing. You cannot um, just tell them what to do. Everything's like bribing them. So with treats or toys, you have to encourage them to, whatever the goal is, to use the leg to, to do this exercise. You're usually using some kind of treats. And then when they relax, you're trying to do stretches, kind of massaging the area. Um, but it's critical, to be honest, the homework. Okay, see, it always comes back to it. Guys, thank you so, so much for your time today. We had a lot more questions than we could take on. So with the, your permission, if you want to send me the word vet, I could very happily send you the details of both Dr. Maria and Megan today. Um, just that to 4001. We do, of course, have Pets and Vets next week. So I will put any questions we couldn't get to today into the pile for next week. Guys, thank you. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for thank having us. You. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. 
You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.